it's the next level. <laughs> All right, welcome back, everyone, to week three of the Gateway to Halloween event. This week, it's a big show. Big, huge, huge show this week. I've put together a nice package for you all. But I will state now that Halloween ends. I will be talking about it at the end of this episode. Not because it's called Halloween Ends, but because unfortunately... For me to put my thoughts out there on the movie, I have to spoil some things. And I realize that not everyone has seen the movie yet. So, the commentary on Halloween Ends will be at the end of this episode so that those who have not seen it yet can stop early and say, he didn't spoil it for me because I'm a nice guy like that. (sighs) Michael Myers is working for Silver Shamrock, by the way. Just like, you know. No, I'm kidding. Totally made that up off the top of my head. Because I know some people still don't love Halloween 3. What's wrong with you? Anyways, from the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero, I'd like to welcome you back to What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul. And yes... This week, it's another family-friendly event. Two movies I want to talk about. Two movies I want to talk about before getting into this week's featured review, which the featured review, I should inform you all now. For episode 132, this week we're going back to 1983 for a Jack Clayton-directed film. That stars Jason Robards and Jonathan Price, and was written by Ray Bradbury. The Halloween Tree. No, I'm kidding. Um, I was that was my original pick actually for my Ray Bradbury episode. But I noticed that this film that I'm talking about this week really hasn't gotten a lot of love recently and that sort of bothers me because this was one from my childhood and I noticed that it doesn't get talked about a lot as a matter of fact it doesn't even have a blu-ray release and that bothers me so anyways this week's featured review will be for the film something Something wicked Wicked this way comes comes from 1983 but before that two movies curse of bridge hollow and spirit halloween the movie I want to talk about both of them very quickly. No spoilers, by the way. Keeping the spoilers, again, to a minimum. The reason being, both films just were released digitally. Um, Spirit Halloween, the movie, was released October 11th on VOD. And The Curse of Bridge Hollow was October 14th. It's a Netflix exclusive. So, first off, Curse of Bridge Hollow. Completely new Halloween flick absolutely gets it oh so much fun so much fun it's a a joyous little family flick with honestly more heart than most mainstream horror films have had in the past several years that's not to say all horror films there's been a lot of really there's been really good ones actually I, i i said it last week too and it is something that sort of irks me when people will be like 
oh, the new horror movies, they're not that good. I mean, you're just not watching the right ones. There are some really good ones out there. Uh, but I do, I will agree. A lot of the mainstream ones, the ones that get the big hype, they don't always hit the mark. Um, this one does, though. This one's really good. And again, though, the thing is, is it's, I don't even know if I'd call this one mainstream because it only had one trailer before it was released. Um, so anyways, the film stars uh, Priya Ferguson. You can't have America without Erica. Yeah, her. She's awesome in this. She's actually really entertaining to watch. Um, uh, let's see. Marlon Wayans. He's in this. Uh, Rob Riggle. Rob Riggle is in this movie. And a little side note. I, he used to, on NFL... Um, NFL on Fox. I was trying to remember what network it was. Uh, when he was on NFL on Fox, he used to do his weekly picks and he'd always do these little sketches. I never found them funny. I always thought dude's got no sense of humor. Either that or his, the, the writers that were writing for him. I always thought it was him, but maybe he had writers. I don't know. It just never hit the mark. It never made me laugh. I watched him in this movie and he's one of my favorite characters. I absolutely loved him. I'm like, okay, the dude's got talent then. Like, it, it, it's, I'm almost 100% positive that NFL on Fox just had bad writers because he's really funny. Uh, or maybe it's the writers for this that actually hit the mark. I don't know. He's great in it, though. Kelly Rowland, uh, Freddy versus Jason. She was in that. I know, Destiny's Child. That's where she came from. But Freddy versus Jason. She's in this as well. She's kind of funny, actually. She's like the the mother who... All right, small little spoiler. She's the mother who, you know, she's trying to um, become part of the community in in the new town that they're living in. And she wants to bring goodies to their little fair, and but she wants to make them vegan. So it's... Who has vegan treats for Halloween, right? But anyways... Uh, best way to describe this movie is it's like an episode of are you afraid of the dark meet spirit halloween sort of in all the best ways of course um i again i want to keep spoilers to a minimum but i do want to say that it's i highly recommend this one i was more entertained than i expected to be i mean like i said it was low on marketing like, like there wasn't much promotion for it and whatnot so i mean I really didn't know what to expect, and sometimes Netflix, especially Netflix, is very hit and miss. Uh, some people would say the same thing about Shudder and all the other streaming services, but Netflix, for me, is usually the one where it's like, that was great, that was horrible. <laughs> um, where this was so entertaining, it was so much fun, I was really happy with it. And I will make note, and this isn't a spoiler, it's just something to think about, uh, the director for this was Jeff Wadlow. And in 2021, he did, I, I want to say it was six episodes. Uh, it was sort of like, um, was it like a reboot or something anyways of Are You Afraid of the Dark? He did that. So I guess it makes sense that this movie has that kind of vibe, like, you know, like an extended episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Because he sort of brought that with him. It's kind of like Jordan Peele, like with his movie Nope. A lot of people have said it feels like an extended Twilight Zone episode. And he did Twilight Zone for two seasons. So it's sort of like that. Uh, the other movie I talked about, I, I mentioned that I want to talk about is Spirit Halloween, uh, the movie. 
So first off, I'm going to say be advised, okay? This is my big, uh, this is my disclaimer for this movie, okay? It's a kid's movie, okay? Because after I watched this movie, I, I, I went online, read some reviews and whatnot, and I think most movie critics, I don't know how they got this, but maybe they thought from the trailer or something that they were getting an NC-17 or an R-rated movie. I don't know. People, their reviews were sad. It it was really, it was disheartening reading some of the reviews I read. Because honestly, this is not a bad flick. It's lower budget. Um, I, I think that's also the other difference. The Curse of Bridge Hollow, I think, had a bit of a higher budget where this is clearly a lower budget flick. Now, I will say, though, in terms of the aesthetics and the environments and whatnot, if you've been to Spirit Halloween within the last, let's say, two years, three years, whatever, you'll recognize a lot of the props, the gags, the costumes, the layouts, everything. You'll recognize that stuff. And by the way, if you haven't been to Spirit Halloween... We are no longer friends. Just saying. Uh, (laughs) But I don't know. Like, again, lower budget flick. You can tell it is. The acting? Well, I mean, typical of a younger cast. Uh, That being said, again, you know, Bridge Hollow, the acting is really good. Where this wasn't as good. Save for, like, Christopher Lloyd and Rachel Lee Cook, who both, you know, they shine. Because that's what they do. They're they're veterans. They've been doing this for a long time. Especially Christopher Lloyd, who, mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> and he's not in the movie long. I don't care when he's in the movie. It's a lot of fun. I will say, though, there's two actors, younger actors, in this film that do stand out. And that is Marissa Ray's. She plays the older sister of one of the boys. And Jaden J. Smith, he plays Bo. He's like the third kid. Uh, There's three boys that... Okay, because the story for this movie is not complex at all. Very easy to follow. You you have three kids want to stay in a spirit Halloween overnight on Halloween. And there's this ghost. The ghost of Alex Windsor, who's played by Christopher Lloyd. And he's haunting them and causing all sorts of shenanigans and brouhaha and, you know, more or less. All that sort of stuff. Anyways, it's an okay movie. Um, If you just go with it and allow yourself to have fun, be a kid. That's something that I don't think critics got. Like, just be a kid for 80 minutes. It's not even a long movie. It has an 80-minute runtime. Like... If you go into it feeling youthful and like you just want to watch something goofy, you'll get a kick out of this one. Honestly, it's actually an enjoyable Halloween movie. Best advice I can give you is ignore the pros because these professional critics did not get this movie at all. They're all idiots. And I know I I shouldn't, you know, knock other people's opinions, but I, I just I didn't get it. I was like, what is the problem here? <laughs> it's just a stupid little film that's surrounding Spirit Halloween. It's a, it, okay, maybe it's because I grew up in the eighties. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I, I He Man. Okay, when I grew up as a kid, we watched He Man. Those episodes were corny. They were cheesy. They were stupid. They were there to promote toys. 
It's like Transformers. It was the same thing. They were there to promote the toys. This is to promote Spirit Halloween in a fun little way that kids can go, hey, I know that. I recognize that. That would be a cool idea to spend a night in a Spirit Halloween. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It was weird reading reviews and comments online and, and IMDB had some scattered reviews that I was like, I do not think people are getting this. I don't know. The world we live in, right? Anyways, let's move on now. I basically talked about what I want to talk about, saving Halloween ends for the end. So now let's move on to the trailer time out. And when we return from the break, here's how do I do this? Question for you. What would you wish for if you could have your deepest desire granted? Would it be youth? Beauty? Riches? To have the biggest Transformers collection in the world? I don't know. To have the biggest movie collection in the world? That would be mine. But no. Uh, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Trailer time out, and then we'll be back in a splat, kids. Hellfire storms are coming, an electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your troubles. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Hey, uh, never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. Oh, hey, always was. It smells to me like we're gonna have visitors. But never whisper your dreams, for someone might be listening. <laughs> And for every wish, there will be a price. For every desire, there will be a cost. you to respect it. Dad, please be careful. Will. Will. Uh, these boys I'm looking for, perhaps you know them? Fine boy, fine. Both of them quite a credit to this little town, if you want to know the truth. I do want to know the truth, sir. And the truth is that you are lying. Then rang the bells, both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. Yes. We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed. And feed well. Tell me where the boys are hiding. 
and I can make you young again. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. All right, welcome back, everyone. Before we get into this week's featured review, a little Q&A for you. I got a question for you, and I got the answer as well. But I want to see if you know the answer to this question. The question is, why did the zombie become a mortician? The answer? To put food on the table. And I will let myself out now. All right. Moving on to something Something wicked wicked. this way comes. comes. Was released in North America. April 29th, 1983. In the UK, however, it saw its release in the fall of 83 on the 22nd of September. Which quite honestly, I'm surprised North America like released it in the spring this is a perfect fall movie (laughs) it should have had the same release as the uk but uh, whatever the movie was directed by jack clayton jack only has 10 directorial credits to his name but there's a few good ones in there uh, including the 1961 horror film the innocence uh, 1964 film the pumpkin eater That one's about a woman who's in a very bad marriage. Uh, And then there was The Great Gatsby. He directed that in 1974. That was the one that starred Robert Redford and Mia Farrow. And interestingly, uh, I'm going to go back to The Pumpkin Eater for a second. Because Anne Bancroft was the actress who was in that film. Uh, She was the one that played Joe Armitage, who was the wife. She was the wife in the bad marriage and whatnot. Anyways... She was nominated for her performance in the movie. Um, And her character, she plays Joe Armitage. She was married to Jake in the film, who was played by Peter Finch. But anyways, Jack Clayton actually directed an Oscar-nominated actress. And that's quite notable, actually. Uh, And, I mean, his style, he's been praised for his work, you know, uh, by some of the top directors like Martin Scorsese... Guillermo del Toro, Tennessee Williams, and Steven Spielberg. Sadly, though, he passed away in 1995 at the age of 73. But, and like I said, only 10 direct directing credits. But, I mean, some good ones in there, right? Including this film as well. So, at least he left a body of work behind that can, he can be remembered by. Something Wicked This Way Comes. Written by Ray Bradbury who was born in 1920. Uh, He was a science fiction writer. Most people know that. Uh, His his works, though, were translated in more than 40 languages, and he sold millions of copies worldwide. I mean, it's pretty well known. Fun fact, though, here's an interesting thing about him. Even though he creates these worlds in his works, you know, with a bunch of uh, technical and intellectual ideas... He never owned. He, he never had a driver's license, and he never owned a car. He never drove a car. Um, so it's interesting that like he writes about all these, you know, technological things and these science fiction things and 
all that sort of stuff, but never drove a car, which I can relate to. I've never driven a car myself, so hey, cool. But anyway, a little bit about Ray. He did get his big shot at fame in 1950. So at the age of 30, uh, when he published The Martian Chronicles, which was a collection of short stories and whatnot, three years later, he followed the Chronicles up with Fahrenheit 451, uh, which would go on to be one of his all-time most well-known works. In terms of films, credited with 160, writing nods I guess we'll say uh, writing credits whatnot in film and television which included titles like It Came From Outer Space The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms Moby Dick uh, the 1956 version in which uh, Jack Clayton was an associate producer for so that's how those paths crossed uh, Fahrenheit 451 from 1966 he was also credited for The Screaming Woman Something Wicked This Way Comes obviously but there's two adaptations there was also one in 1972 that he got credit for The Halloween Tree I think I kind of mentioned that one already uh, he was also credited for It Came From Outer Space 2 and the Fahrenheit 451 remake from 2018 that starred Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon uh, which it should be said that any credits he received after 2012 uh, were for adaptations based on his work uh, he passed away uh, June of 2012 at the age of 91 but he left behind a legacy of great works Produced by Peter Douglas, with Kurt Douglas serving as an uncredited executive producer. Peter is Kirk's son. He's also half-brother to Michael Douglas. Uh, Peter was an actor and a producer. But he doesn't have a huge body of work. That's the thing about him. Um, he did uh, the, the movie The Final Countdown from 1980. He acted in that and produced it. Uh, and then he would go on to produce films like this one, Something Wicked This Way Comes. He did Fletch, A Tiger's Tale, which he also directed that one, and Fletch Lives. And then you have Kirk. Kirk was initially slated to star in this movie, actually, but sadly that didn't come to pass. Uh, even though he was a big part of the pre-production pre process, uh, it because he wasn't in it, it led to him being uncredited. His intention actually was to play the role that gets played by Jason Robard. So it's a shame, but I mean, a lot of people do know about his, his attachment to this film. Let's put it that way. Cinematography by Stephen Henry Burham. Actually, I believe he was credited as Stephen H. Burham, but whatever. Uh, 48 credits, including films like Scream Bloody Murder. Uh, the Bride from 1973, and he also did The Bride in 1985. Uh, he was a cinematographer for the TV series Mork and Mindy. Classic. Uh, the movie The Outsiders. He was a cinematographer for that. Uh, Body Double. The Untouchables. There's some big titles here. Uh, Casualties of War. The War of the Roses. Raising Cain. Carlito's Way. Mission Impossible, the first one uh, with Tom Cruise. Uh, Snake Eyes with Nick Cage. Mystery Men and Mission to Mars, that's just to name a few. Our music score was done by James Horner. Not originally, I'll talk about that later. But 
James Horner was the man responsible for the music score for this film. He has done some doozies. I tried to like narrow this down, and it, it there's still a lot of titles here, so I'm going to sort of rip through them quickly. But <laughs> he's done some classics. I mean, we're talking films like Humanoids from the Deep, Battle Beyond the Stars, The Hand, Wolfman, Star Trek II and Star Trek III, 48 Hours, this movie, obviously, Commando, Aliens, Project X, that's the one with Matthew Broderick, Batteries Not Included, Willow, Field of Dreams, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Casper, Apollo 13, Deep Impact, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, A Beautiful Mind, The Forgotten, Spiderwick Chronicles and the Amazing Spider-Man and yes, I know I'm leaving a lot off the list. 167 composer credits to his name and he was also part of the music department for films like Titanic and Avatar. So, we are talking a huge body of work, a huge body of work. And many classics. Sadly though, James passed away in 2015 at the very young age of 61. But what a legacy to leave behind. And now on to our starring cast. Here's our cast of actors. What did I take? About 10 of them, I think. So there's a little bit here, but we'll get through it. Let's start with Jason Robarts. Okay, let's start with our lead role. Jason plays the character of Charles Holloway. Well, I don't know if he's the... This is a hard film to pick a, a lead role, I think, well, because it could be Jonathan Price, but it could also be the two boys. So, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot... There's This is a big story, so let's just get through it. Jason Robards as Charles Holloway. He's the father to Will Holloway. Um... Jason was in films like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where he played Al Capone. He was also in The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He played the title role for that. He was in Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1971, A Boy and His Dog in 1975, uh, Dream a Little Dream, uh, the movie Parenthood from 1989. Uh, Keanu Reeves was in that. It's Steve Martin. Is it Steve Martin? I believe Steve Martin was in that, but I remember Keanu Reeves was in it. Um, he was in the movie Philadelphia. He was in Crimson Tide and Enemy of the State. So I did say Charles Holloway was the role that Kirk Douglas was intended to play, but there were other actors that were included in that mix. Actors like Darren McGavin, Dick Van Dyke, Walter Matthau, uh, and Hal Holbrook. They were also in consideration for the role, but in the end, it was Jason who got the part. And honestly, I'll talk more on it in a bit, but I think it was a good call. Moving on to Jonathan Price as Mr. Dark. It was also the High Sparrow in 12 episodes of Game of Thrones. No, no. Maybe you know him as Go- Governor Weatherby Swan? From, you know, Weatherby Swan from Pirates of the Caribbean films? Then you, you know him from there? No. What about Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies? James Bond flick. No? Still not ringing a bell? Cardinal Daniel Hausman in Stigmata? Stigmata is a movie you should know. He was Prince Philip in the TV series The Crown? No? That probably... That might be over some people's heads. 
It's also going to be the voice of Jacob Marley. There's an upcoming adaptation of Charles Dickens' classic, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. It's coming to Netflix December 2nd. But, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I, it's probably between Gov- Governor Weatherby Swan or High Sparrow. A lot of people might know him from, I don't know. He's the U.S. president in the G.I. Joe movies. You know, there was the two. Uh, the one, what, I got... Oh, what's his name there? Ecclestone. Eccleston was uh, Destro. Those movies, yeah. Um, anyways, let's move on. Uh, Diane Ladd as Mrs. Nightshade. Uh, she is Jim Nightshade's mother in this. Uh, before this film, she was well known as Bella Dupree on the TV series Alice. Primarily a TV actress. But she was attached to a couple films. Films like Black Widow, Cemetery Club, Carnosaur. You guys must know that one. That was a VHS hit, man. Carnosaur. Great flick. Well, in my opinion. It's not that good. (laughs) Whatever. Ghost of Mississippi. Okay. I'll stop burying the lead. She was also in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Played Clark's mother. Nora, I believe, was her name. She was also a regular on the TV series uh, Stephen King's Kingdom Hospital. Yeah, she was in that as well. Royal Dano as Tom Fury. He's the guy selling the lightning rods in this movie. 197 acting credits, but there's only a few I'm going to make note of because they are dear and near to my heart. We are talking House 2, The Second Story, Ghoulies 2, Spaced Invaders, The Dark Half, which I might add was his last performance, and... Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah, he was in that. Uh, he's the um, the old man who discovers the the circus tent. He had the dog, Pooh Bear. Yeah, him. He's in this. Anyways, I don't know. I, I get worked. I, I get, I, like, happy about little things like that. I'm like, I, the whole movie I'm watching it and like, I'm, I'm rewatching something wicked this way comes. And every time he comes on the screen, I'm like Pooh bears owner. Like, <laughs> that's where my brain goes. It's kind of weird. Okay. So we have the two kids, the two boys, which I guess probably your two leads in this movie. The movie does focus a lot on them. Uh, anyways, we're talking, uh, Vidal Peterson as Will Holloway and Sean Carson as Jim Nightshade. Both did not have big acting careers. Now, Vidal, he had 12 acting credits. Most of them were smaller roles, but he was the elder in three episodes of Mork and Mindy. And he had appearances in both Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Sean, only three acting credits. That's it. He was only in three movies. But two of them have to be noted, one of them being this, Something Wicked This Way Comes. The other one, Toby Hooper's The Fun House from 1981. He played Joey, which was Amy Harper's little brother in that movie, for those of you who know it. Anyways, he was in that as well. But I I can't remember what the... The third movie he was in, he was with... uh, Patrick Dempsey was in it, but I can't remember the title of the movie. This is one I hadn't seen, so it just didn't stick with me. But he was in 
this and the fun house, both of which are very dear to my heart. I'm all about the dear to my heart thing this week. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. Mary Grace Canfield as Miss Foley. She was best known, uh, for those of you who followed this show, you would know her for sure. She was the handy, not the handy man, but the handy lady. Uh, name was Ralph Monroe, which is weird, Ralph for a female name. But anyways, on the show Green Acres, she was, she was a regular on that show, primarily a TV actress. So that's where she's mostly known from. Some people also might know her for the role she played in uh, Bewitched. I think it was something like four or five episodes where she played the character of Harriet Kravitz. But I mean, it's Green Acres that most people would recognize her from. What do we got left? We have three names left. Sharon Lee as young Miss Foley. She played the younger version of Miss Foley, who's the teacher, by the way. She's the teacher that the the two boys had. She keeps calling them the whispering, the whisperers. My little whisperers, because she kept them for detention at the beginning of the flick. For whispering in class, which is weird. But anyways, okay, so. She didn't have mu- uh, Sharon didn't have much of a, an acting career. She had one appearance on the A-Team, a few appearances in the TV series The New Mike Hammer, and a small role on the uh, in the movie A Fine Mess. That was a movie that starred Ted Danson and Howie Mandel. It was kind of weird. I saw it as a kid. I don't remember it very well now, but I remember the title, so it's kind of weird. Uh, here's a big one for you. Pam Greer. Yeah, you know that name? She's the original Foxy Brown. Yeah, Pam Greer. She plays the Dust Witch in this movie. Um, she also had a role in the black exploitation flick Scream Blackula Scream. Yeah, she Quentin Tarantino called her cinema's first female action star. Um, I guess that's pretty accurate. I think he's not off on that. She's been in a few TV shows like Crime Story, Miami Vice. She was in an episode of Monsters. But it's her film career, I think, many know her from. I mean, we're talking films like Tough Enough, The Vindicator, The Package from 1989. I don't know how many of you remember that one, but Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones were in that. That was a good one. Uh, class of 1999, which is like the Class of 1984 sequel. Uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, she was in that. She was in Posse, Escape from L.A., Mars Attacks. She was Jackie Brown in... Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. She was in the movie Jawbreaker, Ghosts of Mars, and back to TV for a little bit here. She was Amanda Waller in the TV series Smallville. Uh, Three or four appearances as that character. Um, But yeah, Pam Greer. Finally, we have Arthur Hill. He's adult Will, but we don't actually see him in the movie because he's the narrator. I did want to mention him, though, because he was in the Andromeda Strain in 1971. He was in the movie Future World, which was like the Westworld sequel, um, when Westworld was a movie and not a series on HBO. He was in the movie The Champ, which I remember watching as a kid. It was kind of weird. I was When I was a kid, I, I don't know if weird is the right word, and I don't know why a word keeps sliding out of my mouth, but I was a huge fan of boxing movies when I was a kid. I liked Paradise Alley, obviously the Rocky films, and then there was The Champ. That was another one. And he was in that. He was in the TV movie Murder in Space. Um, there's a Christmas movie he was in called One Magic Christmas. Just 
it's okay, but I, I always remember it because Harry Dean Stanton was in it, which was what attracted me to watch it because I remembered him from Alien. And Mary Steenburgen, I believe, is in the movie as well. It's kind of like, it's almost like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's, I mean, it's cute. It's a Christmas movie, but I remember I watched it because I saw Harry Dean Stanton's name was in it. And I was like, he was an alien. And then when I saw One Magic Christmas, I was like, well, not really my thing. But anyways, Arthur Hill was in that. And he was also in an uncredited role in A Fine Mess, which was the movie I talked about earlier with Ted Danson and Howie Mandel. The runtime for Something Wicked This Way Comes is an hour and 35 minutes. It's rated PG for moderate violence, frightening frightening and intense scenes, and scenes of smoking and alcohol consumption. The budget was roughly around $20 The box office gross, 8.4 mil. Yeah, considered a financial failure. But whatever. The synopsis for Something Wicked This Way comes straight off the back of a VHS. One of Ray Bradbury's most popular and intriguing novels of good and evil has become a spine-tingling motion picture. Greentown, Illinois is visited by a seductive stranger named Mr. Dark and his pandemonium carnival. Terrifying things begin to happen when two adventurous boys stumble onto the carnival's deadly and destructive secret. And for this segment of the show, I'm calling this You Are the Autumn People. Okay. So remember when I talked about the Adams Family and I talked about all the problems that happened leading up to its release, and even some of the problems that came afterwards. Well, here is another movie like that. The story goes like this. Okay, so the story for Something Wicked This Way Comes originated as a screenplay. When Ray Bradbury first wrote it, he wrote it as a screenplay in 1958. But no one would fund it. He couldn't get any funding. He couldn't get enough money to make it a film. So he turned his screenplay into a novel, and that was published in 1962. In 1971, nine years later, Ray attempts to rewrite the screenplay, now for Jack Clayton. Uh, He wanted Jack Clayton to direct it because they had worked on Moby Dick together in 1966. Two years later, after that, so in 1973, it's announced that Sam Peckinpah was going to direct. So what happened with Jack? Who knows? All of a sudden now it's Sam Peckinpah. Three years after that, in 1976, Clayton now is, you know, he's brought back to direct. The film is being developed by the the Bryan Company, which was a film production company owned by Kirk Douglas. Kirk had met Ray at a book signing and he became very interested in the story and in the project. So his company took on the project with a deal being made with Paramount Pictures Finance financing the project and at the time Paramount was going to put in six million towards the budget this fell through eventually and again now this movie's back in limbo (laughs) enter Walt Disney in 1981 who come along and decide they want to take it on because they want to venture into more mature films they don't want to just be known as you know always doing animation and family friendly flicks and little children's favorites and whatnot So they decide they're going to take this on. They also bring back Jack Clayton and Peter Douglas. Peter Douglas was 
part of the Brian uh, company with his father, Kirk, but now Kirk is unavailable. So Ray Bradbury hoping for possibly Peter O'Toole or Christopher Lee, but to play the role of Mr. Dark, Disney in, you know has other ideas for this, so they went with a younger Jonathan Price, figuring it would keep the budget lower, a.k.a. he's cheaper to get. <laughs> the filming finally starts happening in September of 1981. But as the process was going on, heads started budding. You have Bradbury and Clayton together. They're working together. They want to stay faithful to the original story that Bradbury wrote years ago, where Disney wanted alterations made to make it more family-friendly. This after they picked up the project because they wanted to do more mature projects. Now they want to make it more family-friendly. Bradbury, finally, eventually, he backs down after finding out that revisions had been made to his script by John Mortimer who was brought in by Jack Clayton because Disney basically demanded it. Then Clayton's removed from the product, the, the, the project and Lee Dyer is brought in to finish up the reshoots. Eventually an additional 5 million was spent on refilming re-edits, reshoots, whatever you want to call it. Several special effects shots were removed. Other ones were put in place. The score was changed from an original score by Georges de la Rue. He was the original composer. They took his score out because they felt it was too dark. They wanted a less darker score. So they brought in James Horner. And then after all that, they have test screenings. The test screenings don't go well. Disney brings back Ray Bradbury asking him to you know, write an opening narration and a new ending to the film. And finally, April 29th, 1983, the movie is released. <laughs> so that's like the long story. I really condensed a lot. I took a lot of stuff out that was like, wow, this it went on for years. You figure what he wrote the story in 1958. Now, keep in mind, there's that 1972 adaptation, but I don't know a whole much about that. <laughs> um, I'm I'm familiar with this one. But between 1958 and 1983, all that happened with Ray Bradbury trying to get this movie made. And I have a few pieces of trivia I'm going to also add to this segment before we go on to the quick eight. Uh, trivia a little... There's five of them. Uh, one being Stan Winston. And we all know Stan Winston. You know, great special effects master. Well, he worked on this film in the special makeup effects department... But when you know it, Disney uncredited him for it. They didn't even put his name in the credits. Like, what? Seriously, Stan Winston we're talking about here. Anyways, whatever. I digress and I move on. Uh, in the spider sequence with the two boys. So it's been noted. and I'll admit, I noticed it this time. I had never noticed it before. But then again, the last time I saw this, I was still a young kid. It's been years since I saw this movie. So anyway, some had noticed that the boys, uh, during the spider sequence, it they seemed a bit older. Well, that was because it's a reshoot. It was something that happened almost a year after the initial filming. So the boys had aged a year from that point. Um, and anyways, it's to replace, there was the scene with a mechanical hand. Now, whatever happens in the scene, I'm not overly familiar with it, but there was this scene where... They were supposed to be dealing with a mechanical hand. Anyways, when the final shoot was, when they finally looked at the final shoot and whatnot, they felt the hand seemed like way too hokey. 
and it looked way out of place. So they completely removed that scene and brought in the spider scene, which if you've seen that, yeesh, creepy. Number three of my little trivia facts, Stephen King apparently wrote an adaptation for this movie. And they rejected it. <laughs> I, I don't want to say he can't do it. But at the time that this movie came out, I can't see that Stephen King could write family-friendly. I don't know. Maybe he can. Steven Spielberg was also asked to direct this movie. That would have been interesting. I mean, that would Because Jack Clayton does a good job with this. But Spielberg? He's sort of a master. I mean, he gave us Jaws, you know, eight years before this. I don't know. Would have been interesting to see. And one last little bit of trivia that I liked about this movie, and this is because it's a personal fave of mine, the town square setting in this film. It's the same one that was used in a great little short movie that was released a few years later on the wonderful world of Disney. It's a little movie known as Mr. Boogity. Yeah, it's a favorite of mine. And even as an adult, and I watch it now, and I know it's hokey and campy and whatever, I love it. <laughs> Mr. Boogity is very dear to my heart. Okay, on with the quick eight. These are eight points that I have picked up from this movie that either, you know, I loved them, I hated them, whatever it be. These are the eight things that stand out to me when I watch this movie. Number one, the autumn setting, which I'm... Recording this episode on a day right now where it's blustery, it's gray outside, leaves are all orange and red and yellow, and it's just a perfect fall day outside, scheduled to rain today too, and I'm talking about this. This, the opening shots of this movie alone, after we see the, there's the opening title sequence, and we see the train approaching and whatnot, but then after that, we get to see the small town of Greentown, Greentown, Illinois. And we see all those gorgeous reds, oranges, yellows, and browns of the autumn season. And it just sets the tone so well. Even within the opening narration, you know, Arthur Hill is talking about, like, that there's all these pumpkins just waiting to be cut and carved and whatnot. Like, it is the perfect <laughs> Halloween opening. Like, even with the way the skies are shot throughout the movie and whatnot we see the gray hues and the clouds like it really does feel like a halloween movie i mean and on top of the fact that the carnival is coming to greentown seven days before halloween it, it, it arrives in town on october 24th so i mean you can't ask for more of a halloween setting than this movie number two it's a dark movie that goes that it does dark right i might add but without being too dark for kids. I mean, yes, it is a PG movie. There are some scenes that, you know, could have been done a lot scarier than they were. And yet at the same time, they are quite creepy. The spider scene, for one. I mean, over a hundred spiders. Tarantulas were used for that scene. And those two boys are in the middle of it. And even adult me watching this for the podcast so I can comment on it when I, I was like, Ugh. I like, I I'm don't get me wrong. I don't get creeped out by spiders, but big spiders can stay away from me. Okay. Like, so the, it, it, you get the willies watching that scene. Um, there's another scene in this movie as well is at the end spoilers. Uh, when Mr. 
dark uh, when he's aging on the, the carousel, but he's aging very rapidly right to his demise in the film. The scene itself is quite effective. Uh, some critics have pointed out that the visuals, you know, they look a little dated, especially within some of the light show that's going on at the same time and whatnot. It does look dated, but whatever. Uh, some of the themes, which I'll highlight on more in a bit, they're a bit dark in their own right as well. Um, especially that, you know, when noting in some aspects, like the, fa- the, the, the fact of aging, uh, growing older, it can be scary if approached in that manner. Like, I mean, I know myself as, you know, moving up in age, I ain't getting any younger. Sometimes I think about those things that they scare even me, you know what I mean? And so I get that. And I like that, that, that theme, that idea that I'm not getting any younger, when it's brought up in this movie, like it's done well, you know, point number three, the fact that both children and adults can enjoy this one. This is definitely, this is probably the definition of a family friendly film in which a family of all ages can enjoy it. Uh, It's got a little bit of everything for ages, both young and old, the carnival um, more directly I, I like the carnival. I, I like elements that the carnival brings because, you know, at first glance, you know, it, it, it looks fun. It's it's a joyous carnival in the middle of town, whatnot. But then once the wonders start to unlock themselves, we see the darkness, you know, within the environment, uh, the hall of mirrors, the hall, of, the, the illusion mirrors and whatnot gives us that sense at first of lightheartedness showing others the things they want to see. But then we also see that it plants seeds, you know, to more dire results. I mean, eventually they want those things so badly, but what does it do in the end? I'll keep that spoiler free. You watch this movie. You, you, you find out what happens, but I'm pretty sure you get the point. Um, the performances as well from many of the actors can be considered playful or soft, but as the story progresses, there's also those uncomfortable moments that begin to surface. It's the elements in this film that make the movie enjoyable for youthful and elder audiences alike. And it, this is one of those movies where I honestly can say it is in terms of family friendly, like the full everyone from young children to you know, senior citizen level can watch this movie and enjoy it. I will say though that with point four, here's one of the detracting factors a little bit. The pacing does suffer a bit in this film. And I find this with a lot of movies. It's always that second act. It's always, it always seems like it's the middle act that slows down. can be offsetting and whatnot. I mean, and the thing is, is that I also get it because, we want to allow the movies to breathe. You know what I mean? But with this one, the second act especially is very dialogue driven. Um, and I remember that even in my younger days, when I, when I was a kid growing up and I, I remember watching this uh, on VHS and whatnot, it was usually the part of the film that lost my attention or I, I found myself a little bit more easier, like easily distracted. Um, until the spider scene hits and then I'm like totally back into the movie. Uh, but I will say though, overall the, the, the pacing though, it tends to crawl at times. Boy, does it set up for a grand final act that is just like, it's something to be taken by like the The final act in this movie is great. I will definitely say that, but yeah, 
that second act, I mean, especially, I hate saying this, but it, we do live in that that age, that era where people are a little bit more easily distracted these days. The second act would definitely lose some people for sure. Point number five, the score by James Horner. Creepy, playful, and ominous all at once. All at different times sometimes. I do wonder what the original soundtrack would have sounded like, though. Um, the original score by Georges uh, De La Rue. But being we get the score from James Horner, I, I, like, I'm okay with it, honestly, what we got. It's definitely a quality score, uh, even if it wasn't the intended first option. I mean, I, the thing is, is like I, I could have heard De La Rue's version and maybe not have liked it as much i know i just last week i even said i'm the guy that always raves about the scores but <laughs> um i mean i what we get i i can't complain you know what i mean so it, it is good it's definitely one of the uh, the higher points in the the movie point number six the performance of the two boys vidal peterson and sean carson okay and I do have to say, it is sad that neither lad would go on to bigger acting careers because, honestly, what they do in this movie leads me to believe that they would have had great careers. I mean, honestly, because what they give us in this film, it is splendid performances that feel natural. When I'm watching this, I can I totally believe these two kids being best friends or blood brothers or whatever you want to call them. And it's weird because I was I was trying to think of a, a comparison, you know, for what I would compare them to. At first, I was thinking Luke and Han, you know, but as much as that kind of works, something stood out to me a little bit better. If you want an idea of what these two kids are like in this movie, think of Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint in the Harry Potter films as Harry and Ron. Like, that's what these two kids give us and it, like I said such short careers I would have loved to have seen where they would have gone with it and in this movie I mean if only Will had been a redhead instead of a blonde kid we really would have had an early version of Harry and Ron almost so, so I mean th there's that but yeah they, they really stand out however point number seven Two performances are just a little bit better. This is why I struggle with who do I actually call the lead in this movie? The performances of Jonathan Price and Jason Robards, especially in that one scene. And the one scene I'm talking about is the library scene, right? Uh, right when Mr. Dark is on the hunt for Will and Jim, he's, he's trying to find them. He wants to, you know, bring them to his dark carnival so he can grant their wishes and have it affect them in whatever way it will. And we get that exchange of dialogue, though, between Holloway and Mr. Dark. And honestly, I think it might be one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And it, there's not, it's creepy, but not. Like, Jonathan Price is just, he is acting his butt off in this. I know, it's really struggling to keep these things family friendly, but whatever. Um, cause there's that whole dialogue scene, like where it's like, like Charles Holloway basically says, I know who you are. You are the autumn people. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to the grave? Which every time I hear that, I also think of Wednesday 13 song, something wicked this way comes because he totally uses those lines in his song. But anyways, and then you have Mr. Dark following it up with, yes, we are the hungry ones. Your torments 
call us like dogs in the night and we do feed and feed well. And then Charles Holloway follows it up with to stuff yourself to stuff to stuff yourselves on other people's nightmares. And that whole scene between the two of them, there's more dialogue that follows, but I only wrote those few lines. That whole scene is just such a joy to watch. And not just then, but through the whole movie, actually. I mean, both actors propel this movie to heights. It might not have reached had other actors been playing those roles. I mean, I, I, there's some of those names that I mentioned earlier. You know, I, Kirk Douglas may have been able to nail that. I, I think he might have actually been pretty good. But Jason Robards, hands down, like I, I cannot complain about his his performance. Uh and when it's Robarts and Price on the screen together, they feed off each other magnificent, magnificently. But individually, they give such seasoned performances. This is and it, this is the way like I feel about this movie. Is it harkens back to the days of authentically trained actors, like with their acting skills and whatnot. When proper dialogue was delivered, we didn't have slang. We didn't have all this trashy dialogue. I find like. And I don't mean to knock on actors today because there are still some great seasoned vets, but I find that movies today, maybe they're trying to be more natural, but the use of slang and poor English comes up so much in movies these days where this, when I watch this movie, is very proper, you know, and it's proper dialogue that's delivered, but not sounding like it's being read from a book. You know what I mean? And Ray Bradbury, like I read a comment online where someone wrote like, this is one of the better adaptations because he's a very hard writer to adapt to screen because a lot of his writing was like poetic lyrics. When these, especially when these two actors are talking, everything that's flowing from their mouths is just so poetic without sounding out of place because it fits the whole, like the whole film. You know what I mean? Um, it's a shame that in ways like this, this movie is considered a financial failure, probably why it rides under the radar so much. But the acting clinics given by Jason and Jonathan in this, like there's the only way I could describe it was like, they're like sweet chef's kisses. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're just, it, it, it's, it's a family friendly movie macabre. You know what I mean? Like it's just so great. It's dark, but it's light, but, their performances just take everything about this movie and escalate it to that that next level. And then we have point number eight. Point number eight is the big one that I get from this. And it's the story, the storyline, because it's a timeless one. And it's that timeless feeling that despite some of the flaws to this movie, make it still a great viewing experience, which the flaw that I, I like I highlighted on is the the pacing. But this story is so strong. Viewing, viewing a story through the eyes of characters, the, the struggles of growing older. And that's, that's really the basis for this movie. The feelings of regret that we have as we get older, the regrets, the, the, the feelings of loss, uh, looking back on the life we lived and allowing it to blur our vision or sidetrack us from the future. Because we spend so much time looking in the past at things that we might not have done, things we did that we regret we did, stuff like that. This movie really focuses on that. And especially as I stated recently, it's odd how, for myself personally, this year as I've gotten older, I actually feel younger. And I think 
it's partially because I've been able to avert myself from going down those darker paths. It does happen from times, like at times and whatnot, from time to time, but not often. And also in this film, we see themes of like, you know, like you've got the one character that, you know, wants to win the lottery, wants riches, you know, the pursuit of vanity for Miss Foley. She wants to, she feels that as she's gotten older, she's not attractive. I mean, even the kids pick on her about, you know, not being attractive and she wants to be that young, attractive woman again and stuff like that. As an older guy, yeah, maybe I see that. I mean, I don't know. My mother raised me pretty good. I grew up learning how to stretch a dollar, you know, make a dollar out of a dime kind of thing and whatnot. So money's never really been something that I have had my struggles with money in the past, but like, it's not something that in my forties that I'm really worried about. Uh, the vanity thing though, that's a yes and no thing for me. There's times like I look at myself sometimes I'm like, you're ugly. And then there's other times I'm like, Hey, you are who you are, whatever. Um, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird thing, but those themes still, they do, they do hit notes. You know what I'm saying? And then you see the story unfold in, in somewhat, you know, a slow mover. Like I said, there's, there's some pacing issues and whatnot, but it's a relevant point to be made. I mean, this movie also can exploit the darker sides of humanity as well. Like, you know, those petty desires that we have, the insecurities, how they really slog us down. They plague us with our more uglier sides and this film does a nice job of displaying some of that effect. You know what I mean? And in the end, it's good to see that, like, spoilers, ending here, with the character of Holloway. By the end of this film, he sort of hits this resolve. He, his character comes to that point where he realizes, stop looking at all the things he didn't do. Stop living with the regret. There's a whole storyline where his son, Will, was, you know, in the water and he was he was drowning in the water and it was you know it, it, someone else came to the rescue of his of his son and whatnot and he didn't and he lives with that guilt that regret that i wasn't i wasn't a good enough man for you i wasn't a good enough father for you and whatnot and by the end of the film he he realizes stop living in that past because live in the now live for the future you know appreciate the time that he has left. And and there's that whole scene also with him and Mr. Dark where Mr. Dark's like, I can, I can give you your youth back. And he's like counting back like all the years and stuff. It's kind of funny now being the age that I am, I watch that and I'm like, okay, so where does he have me listed? Cause when he hit 47, I'm like, so is 47 considered older? Am I still considered young? It's, it was kind of funny the way my brain was working on that, but this film doesn't, I, I, I like the ending. I like the fact that, Jason Robart's character of Holloway finally comes to the resolve that, you know what? I need to live for my son now and I need to stop living in the past with the regret. This is a great theme in this movie. It's something that definitely is, is, is very much a highlight for me in this movie. Roger Ebert gave the movie three and a half stars out of four where Gene Siskel gave it two out of four, which is kind of, weird but i know them too they did like to like bounce off each other and whatnot usually there was sort of that dichotomy of one liked a movie one didn't and stuff but whatever uh rotten tomatoes has this sitting at a 59 percent approval rating imdb 6.7 out of 10 with 7 being the dominant rating by a landslide it was something it was something ludicrous and six is the next highest rating podcast zero rating 
And I tried to make this kind of quick, so I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. This is a movie I hadn't seen since my young, very young years. Um, I think the last time I saw it, I was in my young teens. Uh, revisiting it now, though, in my older years, I think the landing, it hits the landing better for me. Um, there were things that when I was younger, because I wasn't an older person, it didn't, it just didn't hit me, you know, and how that I, I, I've grown up myself in some way, in some ways that is, uh, it, it hit a, a different kind of note. The themes of growing older, living with regret, the wanting of what we don't have or what we once had, they all hit, you know, those targeted notes. Um, especially like I said, when watching this through older eyes, the effects, yeah, somewhat minimal. Uh, I think probably the goriest scariest effect aside from the spider scene probably when will has that that dream that vision of himself having his head chopped off and you see the head drop really quick there's a bit of blood whatnot but it's done so quickly it really doesn't affect much um i mean yeah the, the effects in this movie are basically minimal but the story, which is so strong, makes up for the lack of that visual viscerality. And the performances are great. The score is haunting and moving. Despite being riddled with a very long production process and a meager box office result, I truly do believe this is still a film many should hold dear in their hearts. <laughs> I'm really hammering that note this time. But it's seven dark carnivals out of ten. And I'm also going to add, before I, I, I sign off on this and then jump into my Halloween Ends review, I hope somewhere down the line, you know, someone, Kino Lorber or, or Shout Factory or somebody, will give this movie a little bit of a resurgence and possibly a remastered release on Blu-ray. I'm not sure it'll happen, but I know it can be done. Like, I know, I know there's a DVD release. I mean, of course, I don't even know if those companies can get the rights to it because it's a Disney film so Disney I mean give us a Blu-ray release of this this movie is not bad it is a good movie with a great story and some great performances and this is a movie deserving of a Blu-ray release and on that note I will say thank you for listening don't worry there's still a review coming but I want to say thank you for listening. This is for all those who don't want to hear the Halloween ends portion of this show. I will end it now. Um, so obviously you can hear the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Player FM, or FM Player, whatever it's called. I don't know. Um, uh, Audible has the podcast and whatnot. So, you know... D d wherever you want to stream it from red circle obviously i always put the links on social media you can just click on those even if you just click on the link that i put it'll download the podcast to your device and you can listen to it at your own leisure on social media which is where i usually post the links obviously uh facebook instagram twitter you can find the show on all three uh the email if you want to contact me what lurks behind podcast zero at gmail.com. You guys want to know what next episode is going to be? Yeah, why not? I might as well. I'll, I'll throw this out there for you. Okay. So the next episode, we're staying in the eighties. It's another eighties classic. As a matter of fact, this is one that many consider a masterpiece of storytelling and visuals. 
It's a movie from 1982. A story of a boy and his best friend who hails from a world beyond the stars. From the directing genius of Steven Spielberg. Henry Thomas stars in the alien classic flick E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yes, I am doing that movie. And I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun to talk about E.T. E.T. Do you know I still have a stuffed E.T. doll? Yep, I still have one. Love them. I don't have a lot of the stuff that I used to have back in the day, but still have that stuffed doll. So there's that. And at the sound of the tone, we will now move on to the post-game show. Okay, from this point on forward, you are being warned there will be spoilers. If you have not seen Halloween Ends, and you do not want to be spoiled, this is the time to stop. The show itself is over. This is post-credits, post-game, whatever you want to call this. This is my thoughts on Halloween Ends that I cannot discuss without spoiling things. So, you have been warned if you are still listening. Well, okay, so the first point I'm going to make doesn't spoil anything, really. (laughs) Um... Oh, jeez. Halloween ends. Polarizing is definitely the word for this movie. I mean, I know I'm that guy. I've been saying on the show for quite a while now. We need to lower expectations or not go into movies with expectations at all. But if you've seen any of the trailers, you kind of know what you thought you were getting. Jamie versus Michael. This is the big showdown. This is 40 years in the making, right? Or is it? (laughs) Um, So there's things that I did like about the movie. There's things that I'm sort of on the fence about, and then there's things I didn't like at all. Uh, One of the things that I definitely liked, great score music score by John Carpenter, Cody Carpenter, and Daniel Davies. Yeah. I'll, let's put it this way. I pre-ordered from Waxwork their vinyl release of it, which gets released. They're shipping it out, I believe, at the end of this month or something like that. Anyways, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I pre-ordered it because the score itself is good. John Carpenter knows how to make good music. He always has, and... He's only gotten better with age, so I have no complaints about the score. Special effects in the movie as well. I will say there's some good gore shot. There's some good gore shots. There's one that makes me laugh my ass right off. Very beginning of the movie, the opening interlude or whatever, it... it, it the prelude, that's the word I was thinking of. The prelude to the film before the title cards come out and the opening sequence, like the opening credits and whatnot. Um, 
when we see <laughs> we see this Corey character is babysitting the kid's obnoxious he's obnoxious as hell <laughs> and when he dies and he falls over the over the like the railing of the stairs and he drops to the ground and he goes splat i'm not going to lie i <laughs> laughed my ass off i thought it was hilarious probably sick that i'm laughing at that but it was great i think if they made this movie a comedy and that was our opening point i probably would have been okay with it honestly um but then we got the movie that we get and okay i'm glad this trilogy of films is over um, it's now concluded I know they're already talking about that there's going to be a director's cut of the film and blah, blah, blah. Okay. All three films have had moments that I've enjoyed. But tonally, and I said this way back when I talked about Halloween 2018 back in 2018. These movies never fit with that original 1978 film. Tonally, they've never fit. We've never had the cat and mouse game. That we had in that first film. Never. And that was supposed to be the whole point to this new trilogy. Was supposed to be it was a successor from that to 40 years later. Everything in the middle got erased. We took that out of the timeline. Okay. And it just. It, we never got the feeling of that original film. By the time Halloween Kills came around, I had gotten used to the fact, okay, we've made Michael a, a savage monster. Okay, fine. I can deal with it. But it never fit tonally. And now that we've had Halloween ends, I can still say this. I'm still going to champion it. And I know there's some people who are like, hey, you use that word best, but I don't think you know what it really means kind of thing. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is still the most Halloween-ish of all the sequels and still ranks as my second favorite Halloween movie in the franchise period. I mean, if you've seen the first, if you saw Halloween 2018, you saw Halloween kills, definitely see this one. You, you're going to need to, but remember, try not to expect anything. That's all I'm going to say about that. But Halloween three is without a doubt, my second favorite Halloween movie. Now getting back to Halloween ends. And pretty much the positives I made about the movie. Pretty much being the score and some of the special effects. It's pretty much where it stops. My biggest problem with this movie. And I summed it up with two words. Why now? Okay. We've got this story of this kid, Corey Cunningham. And I get that, you know, David Bruckner, or David Bruckner, David Gordon Green was trying to do something different with the Halloween franchise. So he wanted to show the effects of trauma and pain. And he wanted to show how the community would respond to things. He wanted to show that, you know, when Corey would have this taste of 
evil through Michael Myers that it would become infectious and stuff. I get all that. Okay, fine. Whatever. But why didn't you start this with the 2018 film? I get trying to give us something new and trying to come at the audience with a different approach of how you look at the psychological aspects involved. But why didn't you lead with this? This is what 2018 should have been then. If you had this idea that you wanted to throw everyone off and and take it at a different approach, fine. But you should have already established this character instead you've got this rushed storyline of Corey Cunningham in a movie that's an hour and 50 minutes long and I mean to be honest like the idea of a copycat killer could have worked but not in the final act of the trilogy when you now you are fast forwarding the story you're not giving it the meat to make it a worthwhile meal so people aren't aren't ready to, to to digest this. I mean, seriously, after I was done watching the movie, I, <laughs> I was like, I got to digest this one. Like, and it's not so much that because it, you know, diverted from what I might have expected. It was the fact that this story was just like right out of left field. It's like, what is going on here? This was supposed to be the biggest showdown between Laurie and Michael, not Laurie and Mini-Me. Like, <laughs> and then you've got Allison's character. I get that she's a hot mess now because, you know, her mother was killed in at the end of Halloween Kills. And, okay, so we want to show the effects of that. But her character that by the end of Halloween Kills, I was really okay with the character of Allison. I was like, I like where they're going with this. I, I, I like the character buildup and whatnot. Okay, fine. And now we've got her that she's this flip-flopping mess of, I hate ha- Haddonfield and I just want to leave. And, and then there's this uh, the whole anger towards Lori and how she's blaming Lori that it's all her fault and that, you know, these are things that are very out of character for Allison, especially when Allison was so close to her grandmother. And now all of a sudden she's totally against her grandmother. And it's like, what is going on here? Instead of having a character arc where her character rises, instead we're declining this character and making her very unlikable. And then the town, like, that too, with their constant badgering about Michael. Like, yeah, I don't know. Here's the thing with that. Okay, so something that was pointed out by CinemaSins. Okay, so you've got the fact that all those sequels in between Halloween 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, H2O, and Resurrection wiped out of the timeline. None of that matters. Not even the Rob Zombie films, nothing. All of that is gone. Okay. So why does Haddonfield have an issue with Michael? Even in some ways, even why does Laurie? Because, okay, so 1978 happened. 40 years have gone by. By now, the town's totally forgotten about him, especially for the fact that, like, I know, I'm not trying to downplay murder here. What I'm saying is when Michael attacked people in 1978 he went after three babysitters and a couple of their friends 
I get small town life and whatnot, but 40 years have passed since then. We don't have all that torment and all the traumatization that he brought to Haddonfield year after year after year. And all those times he escaped from Smith's Grove. All that's been wiped from existence according to this trilogy of films. So what is with the over the top anger? Like even, even in Halloween kills, like I can sort of understand, I I got why it was there. The whole evil dies tonight chant and whatnot, because you know, we're all in this together. What were we going through at that time? But you know, the slogans, we always have slogans for everything, right? So I understood what the movie was doing, but at the same time, Again, when you think about it, 40 years of silence out of Michael, he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't talking. He wasn't. And what? Like he comes back to. And and, okay, so after Halloween kills, he's now a Ninja Turtle living in a sewer. Like that's what they did to him in this movie. They put him in a, a sewer. He's not even doing half the kills in this movie. They got Corey doing it. So. Where is the battle between Lori and Michael? Oh, you get the last 10 minutes of the movie. Okay, well, why didn't you just take those 10 minutes and put them at the end of Halloween Kills? Honestly, if you're going to go that route. And then, oh, what's with the comment? So a throwaway comment that gets put in this movie about, you know, someone is, I forget who's talking to Lori. Keep in mind, a lot of these thoughts that I've written down were all my initial thoughts. I haven't watched the movie a second time yet. So Lori antagonized a man with brain damage. So we've now, now we we're going with that. Michael has brain damage. So are we making Lori the antagonist? Is Michael a victim of Lori's harassment because he had brain damage and Lori harassing him is what caused him to go on a killing spree. I, I Honestly, like it, it gets confusing if you're trying to comprehend all of this and trying to figure out what the town's hatred or vitriol is all about and why everyone is against Lori and every. Like I said, I, I appreciate the opening splat that got made me laugh hard, but the Corey character too. Okay, so why the town hates him so much? So here's here's my thought process on this. Okay, so obviously he was found not guilty. When the, when that when the kid he babysits dies, Corey was found not guilty because he's not in jail. He didn't do any time. He's working for his stepfather, I believe it's his stepfather, at that like the the garage, whatever the whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> again, like I said, I've only watched this once. There's things I probably have a little bit of my facts skewed. Um, I mean, I get okay. So the parents of the dead child I can understand the mother resenting him and the father has that weird monologue whatever okay I can understand them having feelings against Corey but there had to have been enough evidence at the scene of the crime that showed that he was innocent for him to get an innocent verdict in the courts proving it was an accident or was it a hung jury was it a technicality like what's the story there This is why Halloween 2018 should have led with this instead of waiting to Halloween ends to cram it all in. Or did we even have this planned? Like, is the Corey character filler for an episode, for an an episode, a, a, a part in the movie trilogy that you didn't know how to conclude this? Did you not have this planned? Like, 
I, I don't, there's so much where I walked away from this movie going, am I supposed to like this or not? And I, I, I know that the actors and the, uh, the director and the writers and all them, they're going to defend what they did with this movie. And, and rightfully so, they should. But it's one of the few times where actually I was seeing comments and reviews online that were negative and I'm in agreement with them. And I hate that too, because normally I'm that guy that's like, yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. I talked about it earlier with spirit Halloween. Uh, I have to agree. This movie, I, I know I will revisit the movie eventually. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it again and I'll try to look at it from different angles even, but it's going to be a while before that happens because I'm really conflicted. I don't hate it, but I can't say I like it either. And do I really want to put myself through another hour and 50 minutes of rewatching something that I'm just probably going to approach with a more critical eye? I mean, and I've seen people making the comparisons between Halloween ends and Halloween three season of the witch. But the thing is, is the Halloween three season of the witch, you knew what you got with it. The trailers showed you Michael Myers was not a part of the story. The promotion let you know this was a different Halloween story. You didn't walk into it expecting to see Laurie versus Michael and you get Mike, you get Michael sitting there not even eating pizza. So, I mean, the turtles obviously weren't helping him out in that either, but he's living in a sewer. He's basically dead, except when all of a sudden it's like, you have Corey bringing one of the victims into the sewer and Michael gets to have his way with them. And it's like, what is going on here? Like, are they blood brothers now? Or is there a bond here between Corey and Michael? I don't know. And then not to mention, okay, so was this supposed to be a MacGuffin that, you know, that the audience would fall for or whatever, but Lori supposedly ready to commit suicide. You're trying to tell me that 40 years of, Jamie Lee Curtis playing this role that you thought we would fall for the suicide trick. No, that wasn't going to happen. And Corey was supposed to fall for it. I, I don't understand. Like very frustrating. I think frustrating is probably the best word I can use for this movie. It's frustrating and it shouldn't have been. This was supposed to be the epic finale. The epic finale that I did not expect them to tie Michael to the top of a car and parade him around Haddonfield so everybody could see that he was dead. You wouldn't do that even in this day and age. Like, honestly, somebody's driving around with a dead body on their car. There are people calling the cops. <laughs> There's people going to have their phones out, go check this shit out, Facebook. Um, yeah. I, uh, I walked away from this movie not knowing how I felt honestly. And maybe as time goes on, it'll grow on me. I don't know. I just, I, I I was speechless when it was done. I, I really didn't know like what I felt and not speechless in a good way. It wasn't a movie that blew my mind. It was, it was, my mind was blown, but, not the way it should have been.
That's all I have to say. Next week, we'll shift gears and focus on a movie that was an instant hit with me. But until then...